Ay Pfuleni Tibibele Tahina, Kabukia Mateo. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew. Does anyone need a Bible tonight? All right, Matthew chapter 11. My love. Matthew 11. We have been studying holiness or sanctification or a Christian culture. How do we live as Christians? How do we act as Christians? How can we be holy in our heads and in our hearts and with our hands? And this week, I summarized every book of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation on their teachings of holiness. And I found that the Bible has more to say about sanctification than it does to say about justification. And I would like tonight to talk about how we can become holy. So in the first message, I merely covered some preliminary questions, an outline, a shadow. In the second message, we talked about the goal of sanctification, and the goal is to put on Christ, to wear him. I want you to get dressed with Christ. And tonight, I would like to show you how to do that. Lokushkomishinifuna. Uh, Next time we will talk about the enemies, that is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then we're going to talk about the rewards of sanctification. After those, we will be done with the introduction, and then we will go into the real heart of this study, how to be holy. And we'll cover in three categories as we discussed last week. We'll talk about a holy head, how to think holy thoughts. Then we'll talk about a holy heart, how to love or feel in a holy or Christian way. And then we will talk about holy hands, how to live or act or move in a Christian way. We want to think like Christians and feel like Christians and act like Christians or the HHH. What are the three H's? Heart. Uh, you give me one. Give me another one. Give me another one. Head, Head heart, and hands. Our actions is similar to the hands. Our head is similar to our thoughts. And the heart is similar to our loves or our affections or our feelings. Tonight, how can we be holy? How can that happen? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. And verse number 12. We're going to use our Bibles a lot tonight, more than usual. So do not put these Bibles down. After we look at Matthew 11, we will be throughout Matthew and then Luke. Matthew 11, verse 12, the Bible says. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. From the days of John the Baptist 
who is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Until the time when Jesus was speaking, maybe six months later, the kingdom of heaven has been attacked and the violent will take the kingdom by force. Our message tonight comes from those words, the violent take it by force. This verse describes the kind of people that are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What kind of people get in? What's the answer? What's the word in your Bible in verse 12? What kind of people will get in? Violent people. Now, there are many descriptions of these people in the Bible. I gave you some of them this morning. They are humble people. They are believing people. They are God-fearing people. They are righteous people. But in this passage, what's the name given to Christians in verse 12? Maybe you didn't know it's Christians. I'll help you out. This is Christians. These are the people who are going to take the kingdom. They get the prize. They win. Who are these people? What are they called in verse number 12? Violent. So you could say, is that guy a believer? And you could answer and say, oh yes, he's very violent. And you would be speaking the truth. You, you, could, you could ask yourself, is that man a Christian? And you could answer with, oh, he is the most fighting man I've ever met. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. What does that mean? In what way are these people violent? Biblical violence is fighting with sin. That's, that's the first half of the message tonight. Biblical violence is fighting with your sin. The second half of the message is, what kind of weapons do you have? I'm going to give you three weapons. I'm not going to give them. I'm going to pull them out of the Bible. So how are you going to become holy? How are you going to learn to live like a Christian? How does that happen? And the answer is, you've got to become violent. Well, what kind of violence? It's a violence against your sin. Is that really what the Bible teaches? Look at those words again. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And what do the violent do? But it doesn't say Christian. And it doesn't even say sin. And it doesn't even say heaven. How can you know that Christians will violently attack their sin and by doing so will gain heaven? How can we be sure? I told you we were going to look at many passages. Go back in your Bibles to Matthew 7, verse 14. Matthew 7, verse 14. Matthew 7, 14. Because the gate is small and the way is... What is the way? The way is 
hard if you have an ESV. And I think that's the accurate translation. The New American Standard says the way is narrow. The King James says the way is narrow. But this word actually comes from the root that means tribulation or difficulty. The way itself is a kind of hardness. What way is he talking about in Matthew 7 verse 14? The gate is small and the way is hard. That leads to what in verse 14? The way is very hard that leads to life. And because the way is hard, how many people will find it? Few. The way is hard and not many people are going to find it. So what we're dealing with here in Matthew 7 is the Christian life. Is it going to be easy or is it going to be hard? That's Matthew chapter 7. That's Matthew chapter 11. Go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 verse 23. Again, what are we looking at with all these verses? I just made an assertion from Matthew 11 verse 12. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And I added words into that. The violent take it by force. I said, the violent equal the Christians. Take it means fighting with your sin. And it is heaven. So the the violent people are these Christians who are killing their sin and so taking heaven. How can we prove that? Well, we just looked at Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, and it said the way is difficult. And now we're at Luke 9, verse 23, and I want to see if we find that same theme there. Look at Luke 9, verse 23. Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, now he's going to have to do three things. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be able to do three things. What are those three things that you're going to have to learn to do? What's the first one? Deny Deny who? Deny who? This is Luke 9, verse 23. Luke 9, verse 23, you're actually going to have to fight with yourself. Aren't you the most difficult person to deal with? If you could just conquer yourself, what kind of a man would you be? Why is it that diet programs are not easy? Because it's hard to fight with who? Yourself. Who is the person that makes it hard for you to wake up in the morning? Is it not yourself? Our Lord Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, deny who? Yourself. What's the second Marker in verse 23. Take up your cross. What is a cross? It is an instrument of execution. Jesus was speaking to these people who knew the Romans killed people with crosses. In Luke 9, 23, he says, if you're going to come after me and be my disciple, you're going to have to fight with yourself and then take up your cross to kill who? Yourself. What's the third adjective and ver- or verb in verse 23? Follow me. That means follow my laws or obey me. 
You can't obey yourself anymore. You're going to have to throw yourself down as the king and put me up as the king. What are we doing with these verses? This is the third passage we've seen. And we're trying to show you that when the Bible says the violent take it by force, our main verse tonight is Matthew 11 verse 12, the violent take it by force. And we've begun by interpreting that as saying violent people are the Christians, take it is heaven, and the force is killing our sin. And I said, how can we prove that? So we've looked at two passages already, and we're going to just look at a string of passages all from the lips of Jesus. And when we're done with Jesus, we're going to go to Paul. Well, there's more from Luke. Go to Luke 13, verse 24. If you need help with this, or if you are doubting this, then you might want to make a string of all these passages. Luke 13, verse 24. Perhaps the strongest in the entire Bible. Luke 13, verse 24. It begins with a verb. Luke 13, verse 24. What's the first word of the verse? Strive. Strive, Or in some translations, make every effort. Listen to the Greek word. I don't want to show off, but I do want you to hear the Greek word. Here's the Greek word. Agoniza. Do you hear that, agonize? The Greek word, here's, I'm just reading the Greek. It's agoniza. Agonize. Agonize. To do what in verse 24? To enter at the narrow gate. Oh, where have I heard about the narrow gate? Didn't we just see that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14? These are two different sermons. By the way, every passage I'm showing you is a different sermon from Jesus. Which means he was talking about this all the time. In Matthew 7, that was his first sermon ever. In Matthew 11, that's a sermon that he's giving only to the Pharisees. And the followers of John. Here in Luke 9, where we just looked at. He's preaching to his disciples. In Luke 13, he's answering crowds again. Strive to enter at the narrow gate. Why? Because many people think they will get in and what will happen? There's one more passage from Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I said there's one more. What I meant is... I listed one more. I actually cut out a number of passages because my sermons already take an hour. Look at Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached and every man is forcing his way into it. Pressing into it. Did you hear our earlier verse? The violent take it by force. The violent. It's a noun. Violent people. Here in Luke 16 verse 16, when it says everyone is pressing into it. Does your Bible say press or urge or force? Pressing. What does yours say? Force. Force, force, it's the same root as back in Matthew 11, verse 12. 
But in Matthew 11, it's a noun. When it says the violent take it by force, that word violent is a noun. Here, it's the same Greek word, but it's a verb. The violent people are being violent. Everyone is violently pressing or forcing or fighting. They're fighting to get in there. They've got to get in. All of this, all the verses that I've shown you so far are perfectly pictured in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read that book, you may remember there is a place called Interpreter's House. You see, the Pilgrim's Progress is a story of a man who's living in the city of destruction. While he stays there, he suddenly gets a book. And the book tells him, flee from the wrath to come. And he doesn't know where to run. And so every day he's frightened that he's, his city will be destroyed. And he tells his wife and children. And finally, a man named Evangelist comes to him. And Evangelist says, why are you here in this city? And the man says, I don't know where to go. And Evangelist says, do you see over there that shining light? And he says, I think I do. And Evangelist says, run straight for that light. Don't turn around. Don't turn back. Go straight for that light. And Christian tries to get his wife and children to come. He has four boys. But they won't listen to him. And so finally, Christian, who has this terrible burden on his back, runs after the light. And his wife and children see him running and they shout out, come back, come back. And John Bunyan writes this. Does anyone know the next part? John Bunyan says, he puts his fingers in his ears and shouts, life, life, eternal life, and won't even turn back to look at his wife and children. And he runs after there to get to, the, to get to that shining light. Eventually, as he gets near, he comes to a house called the Interpreter's House. The Interpreter is the Holy Spirit. And he steps into the house and the interpreter shows him different rooms in the house. And then the interpreter takes him outside and shows him a large grassy field. And on the field, there's a table set up, maybe like this table. And a man seated at the table taking the names of anyone who comes near. And Christian is watching and he sees a man come up to the table and he says, write down my name. And they write his name down. And then the man turns and takes a shield and a sword. And he looks across the grassy field. And on the other side of the grassy field, he sees a palace. But between the man with the sword and the shield and the palace, there are a number of other men who all have swords and shields. And the man with the sword and the shield approaches them. And he starts attacking. And John Bunyan writes this word. He says, hacking. H-A-C-K. He begins to hack and to fight and to attack these men. And once or twice, they hit him. And he begins to bleed. And then he falls down, but he jumps up again. And he swings the sword and knocks and attacks and fights. And eventually, what happens? Do you want to guess? He throws down every one of those men. And though he's bloody and dirty and sweaty, he marches up to the palace and he's given entrance. That was Bunyan explaining our verse, Matthew 11, verse 12. 
the violent take it by force. Or Luke 16, 16. Everyone is forcing their way into that palace. Friends, we must fight. We must kill our sin if we would be holy. I have more verses up here, but I think we've got the message. I could go through the epistles. I, think I could go through Jesus' words and give you more, but I think you get the idea. How are we to be sanctified? And the first answer, I told you there's two points in the sermon tonight. The first answer is the doctrine, and the second answer is the practical applications. And when I tell you the doctrine, the answer for what is the doctrine for how we become sanctified, the answer is we kill our sin. We fight with our sin. It takes all of our strength. It's going to take everything you've got. It's going to take your time and your money and your energy. It's going to take every bit of what you've got. That's the doctrine. That's the teaching. That's clearly what Jesus Christ was setting out with the words, the violent take it by force. Do you want to be a holy man? Then you're going to have to fight. It's not going to come easy. Do you want to be a true Christian? It's going to take some killing. Well, that's the doctrine. What about the application? What are the practical applications of this? Before I give you those, let me give you two words of caution. Number one is a word of balance. I've given you this before in other sermons, but I want to give it so often because we are constantly self-righteous. Every one of us is wired in our brains because of our sin to be self-righteous. When we should look to Christ, we are looking at ourselves. And when we should look at ourselves, we're looking at everyone else. So I want to give a word of balance. Friends, you must be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Every time I preach on these messages, I'm trying to give the balance. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. The only way your name will be written in the book of life is if you believe, if you look, if you trust, if you rest, if you lean on Jesus like I'm leaning on this railing right now. You don't work to be justified. You don't kill your sin in order to be written in the book of life. If you want the robes of righteousness, you're going to have to trust in Jesus. That's the message all the time, every time. Faith alone in Christ alone to be justified. But that's not all there is in the Bible. In fact, what I just mentioned, what doctrine is mentioned more often in the Bible? Justification by faith or sanctification by works? Which doctrine? Sanctification by works. I went through the entire New Testament this week from Matthew to Revelation. 
and I started counting, and then I quit counting because sanctification is mentioned so many more times than justification by faith that I stopped counting. Hundreds of commands, scores of paragraphs are given in the Bible in almost every book of the Bible. To help us know that if we would be holy, we're going to have to fight and kill and work and go to work. Now, if you want to be justified, you don't look to your works. And for that, let me give you the quote from a great old Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. I have his book on justifying faith. It's 600 pages long. This man, Thomas Goodwin, lived in the 1640s. He was in the Westminster Assembly. One of the great leaders of that assembly. I was a Presbyterian. And he wrote many books. But one of the books he wrote was a 600-page book on what is faith. Wow. Could you write two pages on what is faith? This man wrote 600 pages on what is faith. And when you finish the first 500, the last 80 pages of the book, he gives to tell you, How can you be sure that your faith is true faith and not false faith? Let me give you a quote that he says on page 523. Quote, it is the most difficult matter in all of theology. Wow. What do you think he would say, Amy? The most difficult matter in all of theology. Caleb, what do you think he would say? The most difficult matter in all of theology. Well, now you know because I've given you a hint at where it comes in the book. Here's what he's going to say. The most difficult matter in all of theology. To give both works and grace their limits. Did you hear that? He says, Goodwin says, the most difficult matter in all of theology is somehow I'm going to have to believe only in Christ without any works. And then I'm going to have to turn around and I'm going to have to fight and kill my sin. And I must not mix those two. And that's the most difficult thing in theology. Well said, Goodwin. Amen, Mr. Presbyterian from 400 years ago. And by God's grace, we are going to try to do that. But I want you to hear me. Do not blend justification and sanctification. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But at the same time, move on and fight with your sin. Goodwin's not done. Let me read the rest of the quote. The rest of the sentence, I should say. While duties are only taught, that means if you only talk about killing your sin, then faith in Christ is lost. Do you find that? So if I teach you all the time, go read your Bible. Go pray, go fast, go pass out tracts. If I only talk about that, you will find people are not looking to Christ. They're not believing on Christ. Well done, but listen to this. And while faith alone is urged, carnal people, that means worldly people. If I only preach, look to Christ, look to Christ, believe on Christ, carnal people will dream That good works are unnecessary. That's exactly right. Goodwin's nailed it. And that's why I gave you that quote. The most difficult matter in theology as a preacher, I've got to tell you, look only to Christ, trust only in Christ, believe on Christ, and then go on killing your sin. And don't you ever mix the two. 
And if I have made an error, may God forgive me and may the Holy Spirit help you. But I want to always lift up both of those and keep them in their balance. We are justified by faith and we are becoming holy by fighting and killing our sin. I read a book just this week written by a reformed man. I would call myself reformed. And I was so saddened by that book because the whole book was look to Christ, don't worry about your works. We don't need to worry about works. What is going to happen to a church when they never hear the pastor say, repent, husbands love your wives, wives obey your husbands, kids honor your parents, wake up early, read your Bibles, give money to missionaries. If we never hear that, what's going to happen? We're going to become carnal, cold, dead. And of course the opposite can happen. The problem is I don't read those books. I don't, I don't even have those books that only talk about works and don't talk about faith. But I'm sure those books are out there. We need both sides. So first of all, or not first of all, but in, in closing this first section as the first of two words of caution, I want to give that word of balance. And then one more word. This week I spoke to two people who said, I have been trying I have been trying to pray and trying to read my Bible. I have been trying to live a holy life, but I find myself failing all the time. And let me just give one word here of perseverance, and that is, you have got to do that by faith. Do not give up, because he will answer. In Luke 18... This woman, she's very poor, and she comes before a judge and says, Have mercy on me. Help me. My enemies are damaging my property. and Oh, help me. And the man won't listen. And she goes over and over to the wicked judge. And finally, the judge answers her. And then Jesus says, If a wicked judge will answer her, how much more will God hear you? And so I tell you, if that is you... If you say, I hear this message about being violent, but I have tried that, and honestly, I'm tired. Then I tell you, have a word of perseverance. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. And go ask Him and pray for help. And that's what we're praying for this month, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 3. We are praying that we would be strengthened with His Spirit in our inner man. If that's you, then that prayer is for you. Go right to God and pray that and say, I am so weak. I've tried and I'm failing. I've tried and I'm failing. Help me and he will deliver help. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of God. It's the inspired prayer of the Apostle Paul. Well, our second point for tonight's message is this. What tools has God given us? What weapons has he given us? Matthew 11, verse 12. The violent take it by force. If we're going to be holy, we're going to have to fight and kill our sin. If we're going to be holy, it's going to take a lot of work. What weapons does he give us? Tonight I want to talk to you about those weapons. There are three. 
And they are called by theologians the means of grace. M-E-A-N-S. Means. Means are tools. The means of grace. The tools of grace. You can call them the weapons of grace. We are given three great weapons. When I say we are given three great weapons, I'm going to list these three, and you might think of a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth, or a seventh. That's all right. I'm giving you these three because they're in the Bible, but you could multiply the weapons because God has given us so much. Some people, when they're writing on this topic, will give very many But I don't think it helps people. Because if you give someone 10 or 20 or 30 weapons, they can be distracted and and struggle to even choose one. So I'm going to give you the three, and then what you'll find is this. For the people who give 10 or 15 or 20 means of grace or tools for grace or weapons for fighting with your sin, you'll find that eventually all those other ones fit into one of these three categories. There's a second reason why I'm going to give you these three. Because in church history, Thomas Goodwin helped the Presbyterians write a confession of faith. In that confession of faith for the Presbyterian churches of England and Scotland, they listed these three. But not only that, when the Baptists made a list, they listed these three and only these three. But not only that, when the missionaries went to Burma, they listed these three. But not only that, when the Dutch Reformed churches in Holland wrote up a confession of faith and a catechism, they listed these three. But not only that, when the Lutherans made a confession of faith, they listed these three. But not only that, almost every single historical record you can find from almost any church lists these three. So I feel in good company when I look back and say, what can I say to help my church? What can I say to help my children? What can I say to help you? What tools can you go and say, ah, these tools are what I'll use? Answer is, here's three. And if you think of a fourth or a fifth or a sixth or a seventh, I'm not bothered at all. Wonderful. They'll probably fit in to one of these three buckets. But if they don't, no problem. Fight your sin with any stick you can pick up. Kill your sin. Do you want to guess the three tools or the three weapons? Who can guess the first one? Brother, you know it. What is it? Prayer, that's number two in almost all the lists, but I'll let you have it first. Prayer, Bible reading, and the church. Those are the three weapons or the three tools that are called the means of grace. If you're ever reading old books like Thomas Goodwin, which I would recommend, I bought it in this town at Detroit's pharmacy before he moved into Spar, before Spar was built, when Detroit was still on Sungozi Street, years ago, I purchased... Thomas Goodwin's book, right here in Loose Tree Card. It was a great purchase, maybe the best purchase I've made in this town. 
If you're ever going to read the old books by the Puritans, you'll see the words means of grace. What they mean is just tools for grace, weapons for the fight. That's all they mean. And they might multiply their list because the Puritans love to make a big long list. But at the end of the day, they come back and say, ultimately, there are only three. And those three are Bible, prayer, and the church. Which one should we start with? Bible. Not your dad's. He said prayer. You can deal with him at home. The Bible. Brothers and sisters, we're given three tools. And of those tools, the Bible is first. But when I list the Bible, it is very common for the old books to write Bible. I would prefer to write reading the Bible. Reading the Bible because the Bible sitting by itself does not help you become holy. No one was ever helped because they owned a Bible. Or as some songers have told me, they'll buy a Bible and put it under their pillow. Why do they do that? They hope maybe it will protect them like an orb or an amulet or some kind of um, magic charm. Some people say they leave it beside their bed. Some people say they open it to a verse and leave it beside their bed. As if somehow it has magic power. No, no, no. You have power when you read the Bible. There's no power in owning a Bible. It must be read. It must be read and believed and obeyed and understood. A few comments about reading the Bible. Number one, read the Bible every day. Where does the Bible command us to read it every day? Years ago, someone told me, there's no command to read your Bible every day. Is that true? Don't say yes. Don't say no. Try to think of the verse. Let me give you a verse. Psalm 1 verse 2. In his law, he meditates day and night. The successful man meditates in God's law day and night. That's pretty close to a command. Or 2 Timothy 2. Study to show yourself an approved workman. Study the word of God. Or Matthew 4 verse 4. Man will not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word. Or 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. As newborn babies, desire the sincere milk of the word so that you can grow by it. You grow by the Bible. Read your Bible every day. Is it a sin if you don't read your Bible every day? Well, is it a sin if a baby doesn't eat? I don't know if it's a sin, but I know it's foolish. It's dangerous. Moms, don't you want your baby to eat? How do you feel if it goes three days without food? Dad doesn't notice, but the mom is worried the whole time. Number one, read your Bible every day. Number two, memorize the Bible. Psalm 119, your word have I hid in my heart so that I would not sin. 
Do you see? It's right there. There's the connection. Psalm 119. Is that verse 11? I think it's verse 11. Your word have I hid in my heart so that I will not sin. We are talking about how to be holy. There's the connection. It's the word that makes you holy. I hide your word in my heart so that I will not sin. Or two verses earlier, verse 9. By what will a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. Young men, do you struggle with bad thoughts sometimes? How are you going to fix that? Fill yourself with the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 9. The Bible is our tool for holiness and godliness. John 17, verse 17. Jesus said, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is the truth. 1 John 4, verse 1. Test the spirits to see whether they are of God. How can you test anyone by your own thoughts? No, you test them by the word of God, by the standard, the measure, the canon that he has given you. Read your Bible every day. Memorize it every day. God has given these tools. Number three, that is number three underneath Roman numeral two, underneath letter A. The third comment under reading the Bible. Read good books that help explain the Bible. We used to have a lending library at our church. I need to start that again. If anyone wants to help me get a lending library together, we'll put the books back there. And we can collect them up every time, sign the books out. If you like them, I'll even have a, a read-to-own program. Read godly books. Why? Because the Bible is a very high and glorious book. And sometimes it's hard to understand. You say, oh, that's not true. Then why are you listening to me right now? If you didn't need any help understanding the Bible, why not sit at home and read? There is some value in, in having other words. We believe in sola scriptura. That means scripture alone. But scripture alone, sola scriptura is not, listen, nuda scriptura, nothing but scripture. Nowhere does the Bible teach nothing but scripture. Nowhere does the Bible teach that we should never have any other words outside of the Bible. We need many words that are not in the Bible, like a stop sign. We need many words to help us understand the Bible and live. We need words to tell us how to change the oil on our car. Can you imagine how foolish someone would be if they got some manual on how to use their phone or their computer? And they said, no, no, I'm a Christian. I only need the Bible. You need that manual on how to run your phone. You need the book on how to be an electrician or how to be a lawyer. You need to learn how to make this furniture. The Bible's not a book on how to make furniture. You need many words outside the Bible, but what you don't need is more words from God. That's what sola scriptura means. Sola scriptura means we have all of God's words that we need. God gave us his words, and these are his words. That's why we read our Bibles every day. We need many more words from friends or books or a relative 
How many of you have ever, how many parents have ever been helped by something your child said? You're the adult, you're the big one, but your child said something and you thought, wow, that was really helpful. Anyone like that? That's me. Even a child can help me with his words. We need many words to be helped. Have you ever listened to a pastor and been helped? Have you ever read a book and thought, wow, that really makes the Bible clear? Have you ever talked to a friend after the sermon or during the week and that friend helped you and strengthened your faith? Talk to friends, read good, oh, that's number four, by the way. Number three is read good books. Number four is talk to friends, Christian friends about spiritual things. That's a form of reading the Bible. When you talk to a godly friend about the Bible, it's actually another way to read the Bible. Because as I've said many, many times over, what is reading? Meeting with the mind of the author. That's from Mortimer Adler. That's not original with me. Meeting with the mind of the author. Reading is when your mind stretches outside and you find the mind of someone else and you connect. We often do that in books. Good, good readers do that with books. And the Bible is the book of books. You want to connect with the mind of God, but you read something and don't understand it. So you talk to your friend and your friend helps you. And as Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, iron sharpens iron. And suddenly that friend, he and I are talking about some issue and he brings the Bible in and he helps me in some way to see things in a new way. So even when I'm talking with my friend, it's a kind of reading of the Bible. It's a kind of meeting with the mind of God. That's number four. Second tool that we have. So reading the Bible is the first tool. It's the first weapon. It's found in the list in Ephesians chapter six. Put on the whole armor of God. And what's the one offensive weapon there? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But our second tool is the church. By the way, I'm sorry, prayer. That is also listed in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians, Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20. List the armor of God. And it says the sword of the spirit. But it also says praying always. Praying always. There's two of the weapons right there. How are you going to kill your son? I'm, we're, for the next four months or so, we're going to be studying how to become holy. How are you going to be that violent man going out to kill all of your sin? How are you going to be the man who picks up the sword and the shield and steps onto the grassy field and you see your sins coming and you never knew how many there were? You thought there were one or two, but it looks like there's an entire army and you've got to fight them by yourself. But what if you had the weapon that could kill 10 with one blow? Well, you've got a weapon like that. And what if you had another weapon whereby you could call in more forces for help? You've got a weapon like that, and that's prayer. The second tool we are given is prayer. First comment under the second main point, second sub point, first sub sub point under prayer. Let me encourage you to pray biblical prayers. Pray prayers from the Bible. I should have brought tonight, but I did not. I have a book that is over 100 prayers to pray for prosperity. 
They are almost all, or maybe all, I haven't read them all, but everyone I've checked has been rubbish. It is the man's thoughts without the Bible, but mixed with African traditional religion and fear of the spirits, blended together, mixed up, and then formed into some kind of a prayer. Things like this. They call this a prayer in that book. I bind every demon that is against my prosperity. Where do you find that in the Bible? Is he even speaking to God? It sounds like the man is God there. I bind every demon. Well, if you are God and have the power to bind demons, what are you talking for? Or is this some special magic you have that the demons aren't bound when you think about them being bound? You have to pronounce the words. The prayers in that book are no more prayers than the prayers of Buddhist monks. Friends, as much as we can, let us pray biblical prayers. You will actually find there are many. Can I give you some of them? The Apostle Paul's prayers are wonderful. We're praying for some of them this year, one per month. Can you tell me where the longest prayers are in the Bible? First of all, where's the longest prayer in the Bible? I've told you before. Where's the longest prayer in the Bible? Nope. Go ahead, Caleb. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a prayer. Read it. Like what I just, what I just quoted to you. Um, your word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word? Who's he talking to? By what will a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Who's he talking to? He's talking to God. Psalm 119 is the longest prayer in the Bible. After that, we have a number of other prayers. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon prays a very long prayer. Go back to 1 Kings 8. Even though it's Old Testament, you can learn a lot from that prayer. Daniel chapter 9 is another very long prayer. You can learn a lot from Daniel chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9 is very similar to Daniel chapter 9 and prayed not far away from each other, very near to each other in chronology. Daniel chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 9 are two prayers that will help you very much. Pray those prayers. In the New Testament, John 17 is the longest prayer in the New Testament. We've been studying that on Sunday mornings. Study John 17 and then pray it. Find out what are the requests in John 17. But you know because you've been coming to church. And go pray those prayers. Pray the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Pray the prayers in the book of James when he says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask from God who gives to all men generously. Pray the prayers of the Lord Jesus. He has a number of prayers. We're going to pray some of these later on too. Um, Matthew 9, verse 38. I've suddenly blanked out. What is it? Matthew 9, 38. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Matthew 9, 38. Or our Lord Jesus again in Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray so that you would not enter temptation. Many of us fall to temptation because we're not praying what Jesus commanded us to pray. And I haven't even mentioned the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6 with its six requests. Hallowed be your name. Your, by the way, which is a, an imperative in Greek. It's a, it's a request. Oh Lord, I am praying that your name would be lifted up. Number two, your 
your kingdom come. Number three, your will be done on earth just like it's done in heaven. Number four, give us today our daily bread. Number five, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Number six, do not lead us into temptation. Those are six prayer requests. Pray those prayers. My first comment under prayer would be pray biblical requests. James 4 verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. How many times are we struggling with holiness? The greatest thing we could ever get in life is holiness. And we struggle because we have not asked. Have we gone to God and said, make me holy? Robert Murray McShane, a godly man in Scotland in the 1800s, died before his 30th birthday, said this, oh God, make me as holy as a sanctified sinner can be. That's the prayer to pray. Straight from 1 Thessalonians 4. Pray biblical requests. Number two, pray privately. Number three, practice confession in prayer. It is remarkable how many answers to prayer come simply by confessing sins. When you confess sins, you will find your conscience cleansed. When you confess sin, you will find the Bible open up to you. If before it had been hard to understand, begin confessing. And you'll find yourself understanding the Bible. And you'll say, oh Lord, I didn't even ask to understand the Bible. I just asked that you would forgive me for all my sin. And suddenly I find that the Bible is speaking to me again. I'd gone through a cold patch. I'd gone through a part where it had been two weeks and it was as if the Bible was cold or dead or lifeless. And when I began confessing my sin, suddenly the next morning, I, I loved the Bible and I didn't want to leave it. It was like parting between two lovers when I had to go to work. You'll find when you confess your sin <clears throat> that numbers of blessings come out. Not only confession, not only praying daily, praying biblical prayers, but pray with friends. Find friends who can pray with you. You need to be careful so that you do not show off your spirituality. And you need to be careful so that they do not show off their spirituality. We are constantly tempted with flattery and with self-righteousness and with the pride of life and with the praise of men. But it is such a blessing to pray with other godly Christians. Find Christians that you can pray with. I thank God for my wife and my son who pray with me. Another comment under prayer would be, learn to fast. Jesus taught that we should fast, but it is very hard, isn't it? Because the violent take it by force. Every time you say, I'm going to fast, someone inside you says, no, you're not, right? I'm just going to give up. Let me give some help on fasting. This is not a message on fasting. Maybe it will come up later in the holiness series. Just one or two comments on fasting. Start small. Give up lunch. Or give up breakfast. And give that time that you would otherwise have eaten to prayer. You say, I'm in such a rush in the mornings. I only have five minutes. Fine. Then take the five minutes of your cup of coffee. And say, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to take those five minutes for prayer. Try that once a week. Or lunch. Skip lunch once a week. And devote yourself during that time to prayer. 
Do not fast by saying, I'm going to skip lunch on Wednesday. And I'll give that as my time for fasting. Because on Wednesday, I'm so busy that I won't notice that I missed lunch. That's not fasting. That's clever dieting. Clever dieting is good, but it's not fasting. Fasting is when we have time and we devote it to God instead of other very good, proper, right, wonderful things. The church, the third weapon, the third tool. The church. Oh, so much to say here. We'll only make a few comments and be done. All of the historical documents that I read, and I read more than half a dozen of them, listed with the church, baptism and the Lord's table. One of the most important things you can do to strengthen your fight against sin is to come to church consistently, be baptized yourself, and watch others when they are baptized. Or take the Lord's table. Here at this church, we do it once a month. Some churches do it every week. The danger with doing it every week is that you begin to trust in those works. Remember what Thomas Goodwin said? And I found that people who tend to take the Lord's table every week think much about the Lord's table and sometimes blur it with justification. We don't want to do that. We do it once a month. Some godly churches do it once a year or once every three months. But whenever you have the Lord's table, take the Lord's table with other Christians. If you say, well, I'm not a church member, then become a church member. Give your testimony and say, I love Jesus, I'm born again. But what if you say, I'm not sure that I'm born again? Then say, Pastor, can we talk this week? I'm off on Saturday afternoon. Could we meet for 45 minutes? I really want to settle this thing. I want to be sure I'm born again because I want to give my testimony because I want to take the Lord's table because I want the benefits that God gives through his church so that I can fight with my sin. Baptism and the Lord's table are a great benefit. Services are a great benefit. Not only from hearing the word preached, but from seeing each other Let me ask you, what would happen in your heart? You tell me, what would happen in your heart if you came tonight and there were 400 people? What would happen in your heart? Would you be happy, sad, angry, or completely apathetic? Mm. If it's two people, if it's 400, Azinandaba, Azinamosa, Really, would you say that? You know you wouldn't. Why? Because if you saw 400 people who believed like you and loved like you and worshiped like you and sang like you, you would be feeling some kind of special strength. And that's the way God's made it. God's made it that way which is one more reason why we don't want Zoom church. We didn't do Zoom and we're not going to do it. If you, want, if you do it other places and you want to do it, that's between you and whatever. We're not going to do that. Why? Because if we can't meet, I want you to feel bad. If we can't eat, I want you to be hungry. 
Imagine a man who's going to get married to his wife and they say, sorry, sorry, you can't take the honeymoon. He says, no problem, we'll do it on Zoom. (laughs) No big deal. I'll sit in my house, she'll be in her house, we'll text each other. The church is vital because you've got to see each other. You've got to hear each other. You've got to laugh with each other. You've got to see the people who come in late. You've got to see the people who are there. You've got to see the people who fall asleep. You've got to see the people who do all this. It's important to be people together because we're all that way. You've got to see when the pastor makes a mistake. You've got to see when his kids do something again. You... We are people, and we can't get away from it, and we shouldn't get away from it. And Jesus didn't get away from it because he still has his body. And he's coming back with a body. We need bodies. It's not enough to say, oh, this is my my Seth icon on the screen. Oh, you see, I made it on the internet. It looks just like me. It's a little cartoon Seth. No, we don't need that. We need each other's faces. We need handshakes, hugs. We need to hear each other's voices, see the eyebrows and everything else that goes into people. The church is a vital way to fight with our sin. You will find yourself greatly strengthened if you meet with the believers. In fact, studies have been done of people who meet with Christians once a week in those groups of people. When it's studied, I'm speaking of a book that I have that did this over America. Uh, All of America, or a large part of America, was surveyed of people who went to church at least once a week. In that group, crime went down, divorce went down, and depression went down. Why? Well, it's what I'm getting around to. One of the ways to fight with sin, one of the tools we've been given, are godly bodies. We need those bodies to meet together. I'm not, I'm not speaking of individual bodies, but the whole group as a body. You need those groups to get together. The old Puritans would say, in a godly church, we sing the word. I challenge you to focus on the words of the songs we've chosen here. We have 42 or so in this book. Cornet said he's going to make another one with another 15, 10 or 15 songs. We are trying to get the songs that are filled with Bible. We want to sing the word. We want to pray the word. What do you think we're doing in our prayer time this month? What's happening when we pray? Ephesians 3, we're praying the word. We preach the word. We see the word. When do we see the word? Baptism in the Lord's table. We see the word. The church, by being saturated with the Bible shows that the tools and the weapons are actually connected. You notice that? Because when you come to church, you pray and read the Bible at church. And when you go home and you read, what did I tell you? Read and talk to one of your friends. What do you call talking with another Christian? That's part of the church, isn't it? And when I said prayer, what did I say? Pray with Another person, that's part of the church, isn't it? All of these are joined together. There is a linking and an intermingling of these three weapons so that they work best when they're used in conjunction. If you put those three together, you will remember the words of Ecclesiastes, I believe it's chapter four, verse nine. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. May the Lord help us to fight with our sins, to violently attack our sins. 
the violent will take it by force. And that is how we will become holy. Oh, Father, we pray for your grace to help us to be holy men and women. Help us to fight. Give us strength. Help us to use our tools. We're so incompetent. We can't aim the gun. We drop the sword. Grant, Lord Jesus, that we would become masters of the Bible. Proficient in prayer. Practiced in kneeling. Help us to be consistent in church attendance. Do bless these fathers and mothers who are tired but they came out again tonight. Do bless these children and young people who are here and all those who will listen online. We pray that you would encourage their hearts by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.